Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, and it's verses 1 through 4, and it's really a scripture that's going to set the tone, I think, for what we're going to hear from JP later. But uh, let us listen to these words and and allow these words actually to even shape uh, the remainder of our worship uh, here in just a moment. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is God's word. If you'd stay standing with me as we uh, read God's word from the passage that we're going to look at this morning, and it's found in Mark chapter 15 starting in verse 21, and if you want to follow along with the Pew Bibles, it's on page 554. And starting in verse 20, it says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each would take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourselves and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elo, Elo, Lema, Sakabatni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man was the son of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty that it reveals of who you are and the way that you love us. We pray this morning that as we look at uh, this picture of of what happened on the cross, that we would see it anew. 
we'd see it afresh, that we'd see it uh, for exactly what was actually happening and going on, and that you would just uh, that you would remove uh, our hearts of stone, that you would help us to just see so clearly in the way that you love us and what you did for us that day. And we pray that we'd never take it for granted. We pray that you'd be in our midst and you would uh, just illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let's get the crying out of the way at the beginning. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that we've been working our way through Scripture. We've been calling this series The Story. We've been saying that over and over, The Story of what God's doing throughout creation. And, and uh, as, as we started at the very beginning of the year, we talked about how God created all things, that God spoke all things into existence and that all things exist for him and for his glory. And then there, right at the beginning of the story, the big picture is that a, a rebellion, man decides to rebel uh, against him. And right there at that very beginning, at that very heart of rebellion, when that happens, God makes a promise. And then from then on, the unfolding of this promise. And that's what we've been working our way through each week in Scripture, looking at that promise coming to fulfillment. And as we do that, we see God's pursuit of man and the way he comes after us and the way he reveals himself in his word and and through the temple and through a specific nation at a specific time in Israel and all these promises and all these things and how they uh, keep unfolding. And then we get to the Gospels and when we get to the Gospels, we see this promise begin to uh, come to fruition. All the things that we've been looking at and looking to are now starting to come to fulfillment as we see God himself steps down into the story to uh, keep his promises and to do what only he can do for us. And so the last few weeks we've been in the Gospels and and seeing that and seeing how Jesus, uh, God in the flesh, walks and talks and what he does and what he says and and where he goes. And then today we get to, in a lot of ways, the the, uh, resolution of that conflict that we've been following. Uh, If you read about uh, literature or movies or whatever it is, there's, there's all these formulas of how to write a story and how to, how to write a movie and different things. And they all include characters and themes and then a, a conflict and then a resolution. And, and oftentimes in between those two, the conflict and the resolution, there's a, uh, there's uh, what they call the, the turning point where something, everything comes to a head and something's got to happen and, and, and it's going to go one way or the other and then the turning point happens and then we move to the resolution. And so this morning as we get to where we are in Mark 15, we're to the turning point. We're to where everything comes to a head, where the, the promises that we've been looking at come to fulfillment and how it all comes together. And so we see the conflict and the resolution collide today in our text. And so as we've been saying the last few weeks, We see in the gospel so many misunderstandings of who Jesus is and what he taught and what he came to do. And we see people swirling around him and asking questions and coming for all the wrong reasons. And and Jesus keeps pointing them back to the spiritual realities and the heart issues. And so we've been looking at that each week against the backdrop of all these misunderstandings and what's going on. And today we get the to the ultimate misunderstanding of what happens. And that's the misunderstanding of what happens on the cross And so today, as we look at just this passage in Mark 15, the way I want to look at this and the questions we're going to ask are simply this. First, how does the world see the cross? How do those who are missing it miss it? 
What, how do they miss what's happening there? And then secondly, we're going to ask what's actually happening on the cross. What really is happening when Jesus goes to the cross? And then lastly, we're going to look at why is that the turning point? Why is that the thing where it all comes together? And as I mentioned last week, we now are putting in the bulletin towards the back there with your worship guide. There's actually those questions. My basic outline are in there. If you want that and that helps you and you want to follow along, that's just there to hopefully help and direct you and, and, and maybe direct your thoughts and keep you with us as we go through it. But if not, if you don't feel like you've got to use that. That's just there if you need it. And as I said before, there's these Bibles like this in the pew. And if you need a Bible, uh, you don't have one or you just need an extra or whatever it may be. Those are free for you to take if you could use one. And I'm going to be reading from that one this morning. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll be in, on page 554. And so as we begin, let's look at it this way. First, we're going to ask, how does the world see the cross? What's happening here? What's the problem? How are they missing it? And so as we begin, I just want to think with, I didn't even read this just a second ago, but in verses 40 and 41, uh, just look there with me about who's there and what's going on as they're standing and watching. And it says in verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And they were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And you may or may not be aware, but as we read in Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel uh, is pretty well attested that it's that it's Peter's account of the things that were going on. Mark wrote uh, is in a lot of ways is, is Peter's uh, scribe or taking this down for him. And so what we get when we see uh, Mark's gospel is, is Peter's viewpoint and we start to see. And so as we begin this morning, I read that verse 40 and 41 just to say there's a few women that walked and followed Jesus that are there off in the distance. If you look at the other gospels, you see in, in John's gospel that John, the apostle John was there as well. And there's a few other places that it talks about. But what you'll notice as we talk about this and as we look at the misunderstanding of what's going on, we see even with Jesus's closest followers, they're nowhere to be found when we get to this point on the cross. They're, they're not there. They're not around. And so I point that out just to say, as we talk about how does the world see the cross and what's happening and the misunderstandings of what's going on, it runs deep even with Jesus's own followers. They're missing what's going on. They don't know. They don't quite grasp it. And I want you to think about his followers and, and Peter in particular, as we're reading in Mark, Jesus's disciples who went everywhere with him and they saw him calm the sea and they saw him do miracle after miracle and they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead and they heard him say, I'm going to die over and over and to keep telling them. And yet they're nowhere to be found. They all scatter. You see, just before this text, uh, just a chapter before that Peter himself denies Jesus three times pretends that he doesn't even know him. And so what I'm driving at and the reason I bring that up and the way I talk about that this morning is as we think about the misunderstanding, even Jesus's closest followers didn't get what was happening. They were totally missing what was going on. And, and sometimes we read that and we think, how could they do that? How could they see all these miracles and how could they see and hear everything Jesus said and still miss it? How, how is that possible? And so, but I want us to think about what crucifixion means. Oftentimes, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard the story of Jesus's crucifixion. We talk about the cross often. We talk about Jesus dying on the cross. But I think we miss uh, how degrading and how uh, serious that penalty was to be crucified. That was the way that they crucified the worst of the worst criminals. There were many ways that you could be put to death in the Roman Empire, and crucifixion was the worst. And so bad that Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. 
It was so bad that they wouldn't even let their own people be killed in that way. And so when you see Jesus being crucified and the misunderstandings that go with it, it's really like the the worst possible, worst criminal thing that happens. And so Jesus, here is this guy that so many thought was going to be the Messiah and the king and he's coming and he's going to do all these great things. And then all of a sudden there he is being crucified in the most lowly way in which criminals were handled and were killed. And so what we get here, just as we begin to see how the world sees what's going on, and we're going to see this in just a second, is that it's a punchline. It's a joke. Jesus is on the cross and he's dying. The one that they thought was the Messiah that's going to come and do all these wonderful things is now dying as a criminal. Actually, in between two criminals, as it tells us. And so you see in in verse 29 and 30 and 31, just look there with me as it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And so what you get is this picture of Jesus' own followers nowhere to be found and running scared and bewildered and frightened. And then you have the rest, the passerby and the religious leaders mocking him, making fun. What's going on here? If you're really the king, why don't you come down off the cross? And they begin to mock him and they begin to twist his words and they say things like, if you come down from the cross, if you do that, then I'll believe. I want you to think about all they've seen and all that's happened and all that Jesus has said. And all. You really think they would believe if he then came down off the cross? If the answer is no, they wouldn't. I don't think they would because what you've seen over and over is that it's a spiritual thing that happens. And it's God's spirit that moves and reveals who Christ is. It's the way Jesus says to Peter when he reveals it. He says it's not because of what you've seen, but that God's revealed this to you, that you understand this. And so they begin to throw things at him and they they jeer him and they say and they they keep talking at him. And and I want you to think about even their request here. Come down. If you're the king, come down and you see the misunderstanding of the people. Remember, we've said over and over, they see the king, the Messiah as one who will come and will lead an army and will lead a revolt and will do all these great things. And so even in their mocking of him, they're they're misunderstanding what's happening. Come down and then we'll believe you're the king. Or in other words, come down and get your army together and lead a revolt. Do it the way we think you should do it and then we'll believe you. That's how we often are with Jesus. I think when you when you read here and it says you said you could destroy the temple and you can't even save yourself. That's not what he said. See, we, we often do that with Jesus. We twist his words and we distort them and then we make claims and then we attack and then we say that. And that's the way the world is today oftentimes. But they were even missing what he actually said. And they twist his words. And so what you begin to see here is this uh, request of if you come down and you do it the way we see, then we'll believe. And it's because they're thinking of Jesus in earthly terms still. They're still thinking of just a king that can lead a revolt and lead some people and overthrow Rome and do all those things. Which, by the way, that lends itself, leads us to why this is so ridiculous looking. 
If they think the king of Israel, the Messiah is coming to overthrow governments and do wonderful things and do away with Rome. And then he's being killed by Romans in their lowest form of death on a cross. It's exactly backwards to what everybody was thinking. And so you have this picture that comes. And so today, you know, we, we, we read this and we see the way they're missing it then. And we can say, yeah, look at how they're so off. And they were they had all these things. But it's the same today. We miss what happened on the cross all the time. People miss what was really going on every day, even today. I was reading this week. Actually, I read a quote and I, I didn't copy it down. But the, the basic uh, idea of the quote is from Gandhi. In his autobiography, and he, he talked about how Jesus was a great teacher, and he was a wonderful man, and he did all these great things, he said. And even his death, his death was a wonderful example of laying down your life for others, but it's just an example. He said, I can't believe there's anything supernatural going on, and there's anything more than just an example of being nonviolent and, and setting example of laying your life down. And he leaves it there. And so many people miss who Jesus is just by that. He becomes just a good example. Right. The, the cross is very hard for us as people to take. And so what happens a lot of times is we we go to these different uh, things and we twist it and we distort it like Gandhi does. Well, it's a good example of just laying your life down and that's where it ends. And so we still miss today. Even today we miss what was actually going on on the cross that's why Paul will say later on after this and chronologically in, in 1 Corinthians 2 that the cross of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and follies to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the people there see it as folly and a stumbling block and ridiculous. And so I want us to think, though, what's really going on? What leads Paul to say that it's that it's not that that it's actually Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God? How is the cross of Jesus, the power and wisdom of God? What's really going on here? Because to the watching world, it doesn't make sense to even Jesus's closest followers right there at the beginning. It didn't make sense. And so what's actually happening here? Look at verses thirty three and thirty four. It says, and when the sixth hour had come in darkness, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And just so we're clear, six hour noon, ninth hour is 3 p.m. So suddenly in the middle of the day from noon to three o'clock, it becomes completely dark. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when we hear that and we think about the darkness falling over everything and Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We get to one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. What in the world is going on? What is Jesus talking about and what is he saying and in the darkness? And so I want us just to think for a minute exactly what is happening on the cross. You know, there's been different attempts to explain the darkness in the middle of the day. And maybe it was an eclipse and maybe it was a sandstorm and all these things. And. And what we get to is, is none of those really make much sense. They're very feeble attempts to explain away the supernatural because what happened on the cross is a supernatural darkness. Everything grows dark in the middle of the day for three hours. And so that begins to prompt the question, what's going on there? What happens when the darkness falls? 
And as we think about the answer and as we get to what the answer is, it begins to answer all the misunderstandings of what was swirling around Jesus. And I want you to think just the last day before this, the misunderstandings of when they come to take Jesus away in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter pulls out his sword and Jesus says, stop. Enough. Don't you realize I could call angels down right now and walk away from this, but that's not how it's supposed to go. Right. When he says those things about being arrested and going to die and his crucifixion, it doesn't make sense until we begin to see what actually is happening here. Or the fact that Jesus said over and over throughout his life that I'm going to die. I'm going to lay my life down. This is going to happen. And everybody said, no, it's not. What are you crazy? Peter's that's what Peter says. Oh, it'll never happen, Lord. I'll never allow that to happen. Makes no sense until we start to see what's happening. So what's happening when the darkness falls throughout scripture? We can see it in different ways and in different places that when darkness comes, that oftentimes it's associated with God's judgment. You see that way back in Exodus with the plagues in Egypt, the ninth plague, darkness, darkness falls on Egypt for three days as God puts his judgment down on the false gods of Egypt. And he shows that he's the true God and he shows through his judgment. And you see it all throughout scripture, this picture of darkness and this judgment that comes. And so you have this idea of judgment as darkness falls over the land in the middle of the day. And then you have Jesus's words of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you have this very strange picture all of a sudden. What's going on here? God's judgment and Jesus crying out of of why is he forsaken and and what you're seeing. And so as we read through scripture and we begin to put all the pieces together and we see what's actually going on, what's actually going on is God's judgment is coming. And his wrath is being poured out and it's being poured out on Jesus. And he looks and he asks the question, my God, where are you? What is going on? And to those standing around, they don't have, they don't know what's happening here. How can they begin to fathom what's going on? And so when we read through scripture and we see the picture that comes is God's perfect, holy wrath. His justice is being poured out on sin, on Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is perfect. He's the only one that came and loved God completely and loved man as himself. Only one ever. And here God's judgment comes and it's dark and it's poured out on him and he's suffering. And not just suffering through pain, although he is suffering through pain. It's not just that something much greater is happening. And so we begin to ask those questions. What's Happening? Why in the world is Jesus hanging between two criminals dying for doing something he didn't do? And the answer we see so clearly in Romans Romans 8 that Chris read for us just a little while ago. And it says this for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so Paul says in Romans chapter eight, that God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh in the likeness, because it wasn't his sin. 
He wasn't sinful. It wasn't his own sin. The wrath that came down on him wasn't for any sin that was in him because there wasn't any sin in him. And Paul tells us exactly and so clearly in 2 Corinthians 5 exactly what happened for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so when Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? There's a couple ways we can look at it. The first being for the first time in all eternity. God's perfect relationship with his son, God, the father and God, the son in perfect unity and always from all time. Perfect, loving, full relationship was cut off. Instead of perfect love and wonder and everything that goes with it. Now it was God's wrath for the first time ever. Jesus sees the father and its wrath and it's coming down on him. And so he asks the question you see, why have you forsaken me? It's because God's wrath is now pouring down on him. But then the question goes deeper, but why? Why is he having God's wrath poured out on him? And the answer is for you and for me. It's not his sin. He's in the likeness of sin. It's for my sin and for yours. And so as he sits there and the question, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, is so I can have children. So I can keep my promises. So I can restore the brokenness of your sinfulness and your rebellion. And you can be in relationship with me again and I can bring it all back and so we see that picture. Sometimes we go, well, how does that work or, or what's going on or how can that be? Or I've heard people ask the objection sometimes. Well, he's just on the cross for a little while and it's cut off. And you really think that that pays for sin. And I want you just to think about this for just a second. Losing uh, whatever is the deepest, most meaningful relationship in your life. What you know, whatever that is, whoever that is. And I want you to think if that was cut off your child, your spouse, whoever, and you can never uh, have contact with that person again. That's it. It's cut off. And the deeper that relationship is, the harder that is to imagine. How could that be? How would that be? And then whatever that pain or whatever that feeling or whatever that is, it's times infinite for God who has enjoyed the perfect relationship with Christ, God the Father and God the Son from all eternity past, and it was cut off. And it went from perfect, loving, harmony, wonderful relationship to God's wrath poured out on Jesus. And he did it because of our sin. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And so God pours out his wrath on him. Oftentimes today, and we talk about the misunderstandings of the cross, and you can say just that, that God's wrath is poured out for sin. Oftentimes people will say, well, why can't God just forgive why all this? Why does the son have to die? Why does Jesus have to be put to death? Just forgive everybody. Why even go through all that? And the problem is when we start to say that we miss who God is. See, God is perfection. Perfect in every way. Perfect love. Perfect mercy. Perfect justice. Perfect wrath. And people go, well, wait a second. God of wrath. Uh, yes, God is love. And 
I'm, I'm with love and that's cool, but you're just telling me that God is wrathful and that's good? God's wrath comes out of his love. And that may seem weird at first when you first hear that, but I want you to think about this for just a second. For God to actually be loving, to truly and completely be loving, he has to be angry at evil. And not only does he have to be angry at evil, he has to be angry enough at evil to do something about it. Or he's not perfect. He's no longer perfect justice and he's no longer perfect everything altogether. And so God's wrath is born out of his love to do away and to deal with evil. If he were to leave evil unchecked and just leave it, then he wouldn't be a loving God. And so God has to be perfect justice and perfect love, perfect mercy and his perfect wrath. And so when you start to put those together, I want you to just think about this for a second when the person says, well, why can't God just forgive? I want you to imagine in your life, whoever it is, the, the, your spouse or your child or whatever was, is, is brutally murdered at the hands of an unrepentant killer who pleads guilty says, yeah, I did it, and I don't really care. And he goes before the court, and he's found guilty. And then he, his, his sentence comes, and he's standing, and you're in the courtroom with all his victims, and he's had many, and he stands there, and he says, yes, I did it, and I'm not really sorry. And the judge says, okay, and we found you guilty, and we've entered that, and now I'm going to give you your sentence. And the judge said, but I'm a really loving, merciful judge, and so I'm going to let you go. How would you feel? If it was your loved one that had been killed, how would you feel? To God and his perfect sense of justice, sin is that times infinite. And the, the idea to throw it out there, well, why can't God just forgive? Well, God would cease to be God if he just forgave and he didn't require a payment because he wouldn't be just. And he has to be both. And so when we say things like, well, why can't God just forgive all those things? We don't understand who God is. Your conception of God's love and your value in his sight is only as big as your understanding of his wrath. Let me say that again. I want you to think about that for just a second. How you see God's love, how you see how big his love is and your value in his sight is only as big as your understanding of God's wrath, his hatred for sin, his perfect justice, what it cost him to take your sin and do away with it and still be just and be loving. So often we miss that. We gloss right over it. But, but the truth is the only way that a perfect God can be approached and the only way that sin can be dealt with is when the perfect God's righteous anger and his perfect justice and his perfect hatred of sin can be kept in balance with his love and his mercy. And the only way he can do that is for there to be a perfect sacrifice that takes all of our sin and bears that wrath for us so that God is both just and justifier and then he can give it to us for free. That's the cross. That's what happened as Jesus went. He died for our sins so God could still be perfect, loving, justice, and mercy all together. And at the cross, those things come together in perfect harmony so God is still God. 
and sin is dealt with and it is dealt with severely and seriously and that God can then welcome us with it being taken care of. And oftentimes we miss that. And so when we talk about what happens on the cross, Jesus takes our sin and he upholds God's perfect justice and his love and he brings them together perfectly. That's why when we talk about the importance of putting our faith in Christ and him alone, that's the only possible way because there's only one possible sacrifice that ever can hold those things together. And it's Jesus and nothing else. There's no other way. That's that's what hell is when we talk about rejecting Christ and the ends is hell because then God's perfect wrath and justice has to be poured out on you because there is no sacrifice made. It's Jesus or nothing else. And so that's what's happening on the cross. That's why it's the turning point. That's why it holds together all the promises and everything in perfect harmony. And without it, we're completely lost. That's why it's the central moment in all history. And so let's finish with that for just a second. Why it's the most important thing. Why it's the turning point. I just want you to look at two verses, three verses here. And we're going to end with this. Verse 37. And so the darkness comes for three hours and Jesus cries out. And then in verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. What we don't see right here in this passage, but we see in the other gospels, we actually see in John's gospel as John was there. And he knows what Jesus said as he uttered, it says there, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. What Jesus said in verse 37 is it is finished. And then it says in the temple, the curtain was torn in two. The thing that separated the people from God is gone because now Jesus is the way we come to God. And he says it's finished because all the promises And all the things and all this story and all of our heartache and all the things that we need and want and are looking for are now found in Christ and nowhere else. And it's done. And so that's what he says. It's finished. And then he breathes his last breath. And even the man putting him to death looks at him and says, surely this is the son of God. Because he sees it so clearly. And so when we talk about the turning point and and what happens and and where we end here for today is that Jesus opens the way to come back to him. The very rebellion in the garden that we looked at way back in in January when we decided as men and women, as the human race, we decided to ignore God and the world he created and separated ourselves from him. He's now come and taken and fixed that and bridged the gap. And he says it's finished and now you can come back. And you can be with me forever. You can be returned. And so as we end this morning, that's that's where we are in the big picture. But I just want to leave you with one simple application for this, where we are today. What this means is that we serve a God that knows your suffering. Because he took it on himself. He took all of it. So wherever you are. Whatever heartache, 
whatever loss, whatever problem, whatever frustration, Jesus knows it and then some infinitely more. Because when he was cut off from the father, he knows suffering and loss and pain and heartache far greater than you and I ever will know. And so we have a God who knows what we go through. He knows where we are. And he suffers with us. He enters in and it makes Jesus unlike any other thing, any other religion, any other thought put forward that we serve a God that loved us enough to enter in the story and suffer for us. Oh, that we would see that each day and rejoice in the way that he loves us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for what the cross means. We pray that whether we've heard uh, this passage hundreds of times or for the first time today, that we would see it afresh and anew and that you would just pierce our hearts with what you did for us and the way that you love us, that you would uh, just overwhelm us with your love, that we would just dwell so deeply and richly in the way that you care for us. We thank you that you came and you did what we couldn't do and you restored us in your sacrifice on our behalf and we can never ever thank you enough and we just pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.